Welcome to Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History. I'm Brian Hardigan. On our last episode, John Eric Hexham's body was being prepared for organ donation. Meanwhile, CBS executives and cover-up writers and producers were huddling around the conference table trying to figure out how to continue the show without him. As his family and friends, and really all of Hollywood, struggled to deal with the senseless tragedy and the ramifications and shocking aftermath of the events of October 12, 1984. In Hollywood, there's a saying that goes, it's not show friends, it's show business. And this fact became glaringly evident by the actions of producers who optioned to plow ahead with production on cover-up, rather than allowing the cast and crew time off to recover, especially the 40 or so people who witnessed the tragedy firsthand. Instead, producers rolled cameras again after less than two days. The party line was that the episode had to be finished, because the show didn't have a lot of backup episodes ready to air and, after all, November Sweeps was coming up. After John Ritter's death in 2003, ABC shut down production on Eight Simple Rules immediately, and it remained like that for two weeks. Who knows? Maybe the producers were trying to avoid facing the fact that prop gun accidents had happened before on their show, but I'm getting ahead of myself. As Hexham's body was being prepared for its transfer to San Francisco, the business of show went on at CBS. It was decided early on not to recast the role of Mac Harper with another actor. Instead, a new character would be created who would be similar, Bud Grant said, to, quote, Hexham's private eye role even though Hexham didn't really play a private eye. Initially, Larson felt he could have the show return to the air by November 17th, but despite a discreet casting call to agents for a hunky Hexham type, he was having trouble finding someone to fill his shoes. Though some would later consider Larson's rush to replace Hexham in poor taste, I mean, auditions began just five days after the incident before Hexham had even died, Larson defended the decision explaining he had a lot of employees to answer to. So producers screen-tested dozens of actors, often using pages from the pilot script, to see how they played against Jennifer O'Neill. For her part, O'Neill found this the most difficult part of the whole process, acting across from someone new in scenes she had filmed with Hexham only four months earlier. But O'Neill soldiered on, recalling in her autobiography that Larson told her, quote, so many people who worked on the show and their families were relying on me to keep things rolling so they wouldn't be out of jobs. The audition call sheet read like a who's who of Handsome at the time. Early contenders for the as-yet-unnamed role included model Rick Edwards, along with Miles O'Keefe, who had made his screen debut three years earlier in the woeful feature film Tarzan the Ape Man. Also on the shortlist was Jack Scalia, who was one of Hexham's fellow NBC hunks of 82 for his role in The Devlin Connection. 
But CBS Vice President Harvey Shepard wasn't satisfied. I felt uncomfortable when the first group who came in were very similar to Hexham in appearance, he told the New York Times. We had to come in with someone unique. The man Glenn Larson really wanted was Australian farm boy turned dancer turned model turned actor Anthony Hamilton. But Hamilton, at first at least, wanted no part of this show. He was working back in New York on the NBC TV movie Mirrors and didn't want to have to fly back and forth for both projects. Also, like Hexham, he wasn't keen on signing one of those long-term series contracts. But also weighing heavily on Hamilton was propriety. I didn't think it was right or ethical, because I knew John Eric, he told one interviewer. Not only did Hamilton and Hexham attend Mervyn Nelson's acting classes in New York together, but three years earlier, the 30-year-old beat Hexham out for the lead role in Samson and Delilah. Later in 83, Hexham returned the favor by beating out Hamilton for the making of a male model. I wasn't really his friend, Hamilton told the Associated Press, but we had been friendly and we had been through a lot together. Larson and Hamilton talked long into the night about Hexham and about joining cover-up to replace him, and Hamilton said, We realized that the only person who could really take over the series was someone who knew him. The next day, Hamilton flew to L.A. for a screen test with O'Neill, and that screen test lasted seven hours as producers and executives wandered in and out of the room. By day's end, it was announced that Anthony Hamilton would step into cover-up in the newly created role of Jack Stryker starting immediately. He is very rugged, said Shepard, which will bring a uniqueness to the property. But Hamilton would join that so-called property only to find it in utter chaos. Meanwhile, Virginia Hastings of the L.A. County Trauma Center Project made headlines by publicly criticizing the decision to bring Hexham to the Beverly Hills Medical Center. The HMC, she said, was not equipped to handle trauma cases. She believed that drivers of that Fox Studio station wagon should have taken him to one of two hospitals nearby with trauma centers. Such a move may have saved his life, she said. We'll never know. But Hexham's doctor responded that he did know. And a trauma center wouldn't have made a difference. According to Dr. Ditsworth, Hexham had no chance of surviving that initial head injury. When he was brought in, Ditsworth told the media, he was in a deep coma and only a very small part of his brain was still functioning. He went on to say that in almost every case of this kind of injury, the brain stops working almost immediately. A side note, ironically, Larson's 1983 ABC drama Trauma Center had been one of those flops he was trying to get out from under of when he created cover-up. And uh, today, the Beverly Hills Medical Center is a Marriott Residence Inn. On Friday, October 19th, while Hexham's body was on that chartered jet to San Francisco, Dr. Charles Ruggaroli called Las Vegas businessman Michael Washington to tell him the good news. A new heart had become available. The 36-year-old divorced father of two boys had been on the heart transplant list for only six weeks. At 5'1 and 179 pounds, Washington was a decorated Vietnam vet who worked out regularly and didn't drink or smoke. But after complaining of fatigue and shortness of breath, he went in for a checkup, only to be diagnosed with cardiomyopathy, 
a weakening of the heart muscle likely brought on by some undetected virus. So Washington was in need of a new heart, and unless he got a new one, Ruggeroli estimated that he only had weeks left to live. When Ruggeroli told Washington his new heart was in the air en route to San Francisco, he urged him to get there as fast as he could. But panicked, Washington didn't think he could make it there that fast. You will if you want to live, his doctor said. So Washington made it to the Pacific Presbyterian Hospital in San Francisco later that night. Prepped for surgery, he said goodbye to his 11-year-old son, Nathaniel, his 3-year-old son, Logan, and his girlfriend, Cheryl Condon, because doctors only gave him a 40% chance of surviving the operation. Meanwhile, those same doctors prepared Hexum's body for the transplant. They turned off Hexum's respirator and waited for his heart to stop beating. And when it did, and John Eric Hexum was no more, Washington's surgery began. Doctors at the Northern California Transplant Bank at Pacific Medical Center, meanwhile, received Hexum's other harvested organs. His kidneys, ironically, were sent back to Los Angeles, where one of them went into the body of a five-year-old boy who was barely surviving on an artificial kidney machine. His other kidney went to Wilma Jean Golarte, a 43-year-old wife and mother of three from Ario Grande, California. Jeannie, as her friends called her, had been born with two malfunctioning kidneys and had spent the last decade on dialysis. When the phone rang to tell her she was a match for a new kidney, she was caught off guard. I wasn't home, she told the San Luis Bispo Tribune. My husband came and got me and told me to, I had to make a decision in five minutes to take it or not, so I took it. Galarte and her husband Larry got into the car late Friday night and arrived at L.A.'s Cedars-Sinai Hospital early Saturday morning. During her transplant surgery, doctors didn't end up replacing Galarte's own kidneys. Instead, Hexum's kidneys were added next to her own, giving her three. Her doctor, David Nortman, told the Times Press Recorder that Galarte's six-hour surgery was a success. Later, she was surprised to find out the name of her celebrity donor, when a nurse asked how it felt to have Hexum's kidney. They assumed I knew. They usually don't tell anyone, she said. But Galarte wasn't sure about contacting Hexum's family to say thank you. That's kind of a touchy subject. I don't know. John Eric Hexum's corneas, meanwhile, stayed in San Francisco. One of his corneas, the clear film covering the iris, went to a 20-year-old man who had suffered an eye injury. Had he not received a transplant, it's likely he would have lost sight in that eye. Hexum's other cornea went to a 66-year-old man who had waited four months for a possible transplant in order to reverse the effects of cataracts. And finally, portions of Hexum's skin were sent to the Medical Center at County University of Southern California. There, doctors grafted the skin onto that of a three-year-old boy who had suffered horrible third-degree burns in a fire. In a letter to Greta and Gunnar Hexum, Phyllis Weber of the Transplant Bank thanked them for, quote, considering others during this very sad time, unquote. Back in San Francisco, Michael Washington's two-hour, 48-minute surgery had gone surprisingly well. He's really doing good, Cheryl Condon told the media. 
He's glad he made it through, and he's positive and optimistic about things. But during his three-week recovery in hospital, that optimism was tested. See, the tabloids soon picked up on the story about Washington's business dealings in Las Vegas. At the time, Washington owned five businesses in Nevada, including a car rental agency. However, one of those businesses also happened to be Swingin' Susie's, which billed itself as having Las Vegas' most beautiful escorts. Although escort services were legal and licensed by the state of Nevada, some tabloids reported that Hexham's heart had gone to a pimp. But Washington didn't seem to care what others said about him. He believed those reports were blown out of proportion, and he was just happy to have a new lease on life. When he was told who had donated his heart, Washington didn't know who John Eric Hexham was. But during his recovery, he watched and became a fan of cover-up, and his connection to the Hexham family only deepened upon learning the actor and his brother had grown up with a single mother like he did. He told reporters he wouldn't mind getting to know the Hexham family, but Gunner declined the invitation, telling West 57th, I think it would be way too painful for me. By Saturday, October 20th, Hexham's body had been flown back to Los Angeles, where the L.A. County coroner began its own investigation into his death. During that time, Greta and Gunner set about quickly liquidating everything in John Eric's Burbank home, including his beloved 54 Chevy, and even some items that didn't belong to him. This move angered some of his friends. Photographer Christy Jenkins writes on her website that the Hexams, quote, didn't call any of us to reclaim our own possessions. I don't know who bought the car, unquote. After 10 days, a coroner's autopsy agreed with the LAPD that Hexham's death was indeed an accident. The office then offered to turn the body over to his family, but Greta and Gunner had yet to make any kind of arrangements. Finally, after 10 more days in the L.A. County morgue, Hexham was cremated at Grandview Crematory in Glendale, California. His family held a private memorial at a church in North Hollywood. In lieu of flowers, they asked his fans to send donations to Handgun Control, Inc., the organization started by James Brady after he was shot in the head during Reagan's assassination attempt. Hexham's family scattered his ashes into the Pacific Ocean off the shores of Malibu. His cenotaph is at Valhalla Memorial Park in North Hollywood. It reads, Forever in the hearts of your friends and fans. A week later, on November 15th, Elizabeth Daly and Hexham's childhood friend Amy Peck held another memorial back in his hometown in New Jersey. Speakers that day at First Methodist United Church included former classmates, friends, and teachers. John P. Mullen, who had been both a teacher and friend to Hexham, told those gathered, Thanks, Jack, for your handshakes, your hugs, and kisses. Thanks, Jack, for loving me. Thanks, Jack for letting me love you. 
Today, there is a plaque in Tenafly High School commemorating Jack's time there. In Hexham's honor, his 1976 classmates also established a scholarship granted to one graduating senior who wants to pursue a career in the performing arts, and who also, perhaps, wants to be a movie star. The award is still given out today. Two days after that Tenafly memorial on November 17th, Jennifer O'Neill checked herself into Cedars-Sinai Hospital for exhaustion after she fainted on the set of cover-up. Since Hexham's accident, she had lost 10 pounds. Once Tony Hamilton joined the cast, production had ramped up to seven days a week in order to keep up with the network's schedule. The first day back to filming, however, was fraught with tension. The script called for a stuntman to fire a gun in a scene. Everyone on set knew the irony but they also knew it was part of the job. That pistol shot on the first day of resumption of filming was a psychological hurdle that we all had to get over, Hamilton told TV Guide at the time. For Hamilton's introductory episode entitled Writer's Block, producers refilmed his intro to match Hexham's almost shot for shot. In the first five minutes of the episode, Jack Stryker is introduced a la James Bond as he comes out of the ocean in the south of France, up onto the beach. With Mac, quote, on another assignment, unquote, Stryker joins Danny in a potboiler plot to bring a former spy in from the cold. Then, after a successful mission, Stryker explains to Danny that Mac Harper, quote, isn't coming back. That was it. That was the only explanation given for his character's exit. As the credits rolled, however, Richard Anderson's voiceover intoned, when a star dies, its light continues to shine across the universe for millenniums. John Eric Hexham died in October this year, but the lives he touched will continue to be brightened by his light forever and ever. The touching tribute was marred only by the fact that producers spelled Hexham's first name wrong on the screen. Writer's Block, which aired November 24th, ranked 61st out of 66 shows for the week. When O'Neill left the hospital after a week of recuperation, she asked producers to make things a little easier for her. In response, the writers devised the episode Murder in Malibu, in which Danny spends the entire time in one location. That location was actually O'Neill's own house, allowing her to film an entire episode without leaving home. As cover-up continued into the spring of 85, it saw not only a slight uptick in ratings, but in quality as well. Critics said one of the reasons for the resurgence was the chemistry between Hamilton and O'Neill. That new chemistry, no doubt, benefited from Hamilton and O'Neill's off-screen friendship, something she never really had with Hexham. But that chemistry was also purely for show. There was a flurry about Tony's sexual persuasion, wrote O'Neill. What followed was a big hush-hush campaign by the producers about the rumors he was gay. Hamilton passed away from AIDS in 1995. Cover-up was cancelled after one season. On the same day that Jennifer O'Neill checked herself into the hospital, Michael Washington was checking out. At the time of his surgery, it was estimated only 50% of heart transplant recipients would live another five years after their operation. Michael Washington lived another 18 years with John Eric Hexham's heart. Yet, he would spend many of those years in and out of court and behind bars. 
It turned out that the tabloids that labeled Washington a pimp may not have been far off the mark. In 1984, so-called outcall entertainment services like Washington's company Swing and Susie's, which offered, quote, dancers and entertainers, were legal in Clark County, Nevada. But in the mid-80s, authorities were working hard to change that. Between 1984 and 1986, Vegas police conducted sting operations and found most of the dancers from these so-called entertainment companies also offered a few off-menu options. Finally, in December 86, Swingin' Susie's had its liquor license pulled based on charges its employees solicited prostitution. Washington denied the allegations, saying he had no control over what its employees did on their own time. So customers paid sometimes upwards of 200 bucks to have dancers come to their hotel rooms for a private show. As far as I know, he told the Reno Gazette Journal in 1987, they're doing a dance with costumes and music. Washington then found a legal loophole and changed the designation of his company to Entertainment Promotions, but he still used the same office and employees. This loophole allowed Washington to continue operating. So, like Elliot Ness and Al Capone, authorities decided to go after Washington's spotty tax records instead. In 1987, Washington pled not guilty to charges he evaded taxes in 1980 and 81. But he later changed his plea to guilty in 1990, likely realizing that cooperating with authorities might get them to drop their ongoing prostitution case against him. Washington was granted probation in the tax case, but his plan ultimately didn't work. In July 92, he was arrested and charged with living off the earnings of a prostitute and sexual exploitation of a child. Turns out the police had recordings of Washington trying to obtain false ID for two of his 17-year-old employees. Police also allege he was part of a murder-for-hire plot with four other individuals. Washington's arrest came after a massive joint investigation between the LVPD, the District Attorney's Office, the Secret Service, and the FBI. He's been involved in prostitution since the late 70s, LVPD Lieutenant Bill Young told the Elko Daily Free Press. We've attempted to prosecute him for pandering before. However, his cases have always been dismissed at the preliminary hearings. So the legal definition of pandering is the act of finding customers for prostitutes. With his arrest occurring while Washington was still on probation for tax crimes, it resulted in an automatic 10-month prison sentence. Eventually, Washington plea bargained, pleading no contest to pandering and credit card fraud, which are both felonies. The other charges were dropped, but Washington was still facing 13 years in prison. His lawyer, Herb Sachs, argued that such a sentence could be life-threatening to a heart transplant patient. The judge seemed to agree, lowering the sentence to three year with time served. Washington died on December 15, 2002, at the age of 54, and he was buried with honors in Southern Nevada's Veterans Memorial Cemetery in Boulder City. According to his obituary, he left behind four sons, four daughters, and three grandchildren. On Sunday, November 19, 1984, a month after his death, 
John Eric Hexham was a guest on Health Styles with Regis Philman, where he did a cooking demonstration. It was a segment that had taped back in October. The next month, on December 17th, he would posthumously appear on Don Heron's Vancouver-based talk show. Before Hexham's segment, Heron told the audience that the piece had been taped earlier, but he hadn't felt it appropriate to air it until enough time had passed. During that interview, Hexham lamented about how slow things go in Hollywood, and he shrugged off stardom. A lot of things change, he said, but a lot of things don't, really. It would mark his last television appearance. In November, Playgirl magazine hit newsstands with Hexham and O'Neill on the cover. His extensive solo interview was touted on that cover with the unfortunate headline, John Eric Hexham Bears His Mind. It had been too late to stop the presses. That wasn't the case, however, with Vanity Fair magazine. Their November issue had originally featured Joan Collins on the cover with the quote, But darling, you know I'm bulletproof. The cover photo featured Collins brandishing a gun. After Hexham's accident, editor Tina Brown scrambled to find a new angle. Later in the year, one syndicated rerun of Voyagers featured an advertisement for the National Rifle Association. That ad was also quickly pulled. Finally, on December 2, 1984, Circus of the Stars aired on CBS without John Eric Hexham. Producer Bob Stivers admitted they'd taped footage of Hexham rehearsing his high-wire act, but opted against using it after his death. We were sitting there one night, his mom and his manager Bob Lamond waiting for him to arrive from the cover-up set to do a final taping of his act, Stivers told the LA Times. When we got the phone call, well, we gave the rehearsal footage to his mother. Bob Lamond would pass away from AIDS in 1986. Following Hexham's death, his girlfriend Elizabeth, now known as E.G. Daly, moved in with her friend, actress Deborah Foreman, for emotional support. In 1985, she signed a recording deal with A&M Records. Her first album, Wild Child, is dedicated to his memory. Side note, Daly would go on to voice Pickles in Rugrats and appear on The Voice in 2013. On July 22, 1985, Greta and Gunnar Hexham launched a million-dollar wrongful death lawsuit against Fox Television, Glenn Larson Productions, and director Sidney Ayers. They allege those parties were negligent because they had not properly trained John Eric on how to use weapons for the show. They also allege cover-up's prop department gave Hexham a gun that was unsafe and dangerous, and that the gun's blanks were, quote, defective and unsafe, unquote. Fox responded in 1986, countering that Hexham's own carelessness and recklessness caused his death. They asserted that he knew the risks of the firearm when he aimed the gun at his head at close range. The lawsuit was later settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. Meanwhile, Hexham's father, Thorleaf, waived his rights to not only the settlement, but also his son's $380,000 estate. In 1984, John Eric told Us Magazine his father once tried to contact him after he became famous. I told him, you can't reap seeds you haven't sown. You blew it, guy. Go to hell. At the time of the lawsuit, Thor was living in San Francisco at a YMCA. According to one report, he died in a car accident in 1990. Greta Huxham was said to have never recovered from her son's death. She died in 1988 
in Los Angeles. Aside from the police, the coroner, and Fox Studios' own internal investigation, the Screen Actors Guild also delved into the shooting as it related to the safety of its members. ABC had already begun to print weapon warnings on its daily call sheets, but with the number of guns used on film sets, SAG was determined to find out more. Shockingly, its committee found that injuries from blanks was a not uncommon problem. In fact, there had been at least two previous incidents on cover-up in which the wadding of blanks caused minor injuries to crew members. In one incident, a wadding cap struck a man in the hand and another in the stomach. Though those injuries were minor, they highlighted the dangers of using live weapons on film sets. On-set gun safety would be brought to the fore again in 1993 with the death of Brandon Lee, and again in 2021 with the death of Helena Hutchins. The LAPD, however, was satisfied with its own investigation and closed the book on Hexham's death. Said Lieutenant Carpenter, It was actually a case of careless handling of a firearm, and as a result, he accidentally shot himself with this blank cartridge. We are satisfied he had no knowledge of the dangers of this blank cartridge, or he wouldn't have fired it. But Hexham's high school history teacher, John Mullen, would contradict this assumption in People magazine after Hexham's death. During a May 1983 return to Tenafly High, Mullen said he and Hexham discussed on-set safety. Hexham assured the worried Mullen that the guns they used were safe because, he said, they usually took the pin out or their blanks. When Mullen reminded Hexham he could still get hurt with blanks, he recalled Hexham saying, quote, absolutely, unquote. LAPD detectives were also quick to dismiss any accounts of Russian roulette, but it didn't stop the tabloids from speculating about some kind of veiled suicide attempt that was maybe covered up by the studio to avoid a scandal. Some tabloids even reported Hexham had been depressed over the state of his career, the quality of cover-up, and his disappointment over the bear. On November 6th, the Globe ran a cover with the headline, Hexham's Lost Love Led to Tragedy. It was maybe referring to the fact that Joan Collins was filming a new TV movie with former NBC 82 honk David Hasselhoff. In the shooting aftermath, reports also began to crop up that Hexham had some kind of fascination with guns. Others reported that he had a downright death wish. It's just not fair, E.G. Daly told Knight Raider two weeks after the accident. Now people will remember him as this crazy guy. Nobody knows anything about it. He wasn't loony or anything like that. He was just tired. And when you're tired, you don't function well, you know? The reality is that at the time of his death, John Eric Hexham was incredibly tired, in addition to being overworked and frustrated. He had been working 15-hour days on cover-up while using whatever free time he had in the mornings or evenings to practice for his Circus of the Stars appearance. He also suffered from what we would probably now call workaholism in his unending quest to become, to become more than what he was. I am a perfectionist, he told Playgirl. I have high standards and I still get disappointed with myself. He had recently set up his own production company, which also added to his hectic workday, even during his off days from cover-up. When I don't go to work, from 9 to 3, I'm in class, Monday through Saturday. And then we have meetings from four to six every day. There's always something. 
the publicist, the manager, my agent, or interviews, or something, he told TV Stars magazine shortly before his death. Add to that Hexham's strict workout regimen. I get up in the morning, I either run or ride the bike, and every other day I go to the gym, he added. And he was frustrated. Generally, he was frustrated that his career wasn't taking off as quickly as he'd hoped, perhaps, or in the direction that he wanted. He may have even been frustrated by his own limitations as an actor, despite years of endless acting classes, and improv, and singing, and dancing, and opera, and movement classes. He was certainly frustrated over the state of cover-up. Those frustrations were both broad, as in his lack of promised input, and narrow, as in the filming delays on October 12th that threatened his flight to yet another job in Las Vegas that night. And let's add to all of this the possibility that Hexham may have been growing jaded with Hollywood. Jaded by the false starts, the lost opportunities and critical reaction to his work, and the treadmill that is celebrity. He just wasn't as excited about stardom as he used to be. Life kind of beats it out of you, he told Kudzu magazine while filming the bear. It seems kind of sad at first glance. I haven't looked at it a second time very closely. All I do is try to get jobs in this business. But the one thing that Hexham was not was depressed. According to virtually everyone who spoke about him after his death, Hexham was a fun-loving, gregarious, kind-hearted, big kid at heart. Not to say those kinds of people don't get depressed, but no one who knew him ever reported seeing him in a down moment. On October 12, 1984, while trying to lighten the mood of his co-workers, John Eric Hexham, whose friends called him Jack, picked up a prop gun, perhaps unaware of its danger, and accidentally killed himself. And in the process, brought to an end, a promising career and a Hollywood dream. In closing just one of the many chapters in television's wicked history. Thank you for listening to Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History. Season 1, John Eric Hexum, was written, edited, and narrated by me, Brian Hardigan. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, be sure to check out the show notes. Music for this season is provided by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. You can find his music on YouTube and Spotify. If you like this show, please spread the word. Subscribing to this channel is always appreciated, as is sharing it on social media or leaving a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at tube underscore dark, Instagram at dark tube TV history, that's one word, or Facebook at dark tube TV history. And if you like what we're doing here and would like to contribute, please visit our Patreon account to consider signing up as a patron. That's patreon.com slash darktubetvhistory. If you have suggestions for a story to cover, or if you have the inside scoop on a wicked part of television's past, drop me an email at darktubetvhistory at gmail.com. But based on the response so far, I'm hoping to release a bonus episode of Season 1 that will answer some of your questions and clarify or expand some elements of our storylines. <laughs>
Now, if you'd like to be a part of that episode again, please drop me a line. Be sure to tell me your first name and your location, and I'll mention it on the show. Again, that's darktubetvhistory, one word, at gmail.com, or add us on Twitter at tube underscore dark. We'll be back soon, so stay tuned to this channel for more stories from the scandalous, devious, and sometimes murderous past of our favorite pastime. This has been a production of Hot Mush Media.